point, how are y'all? Let's try that again. Sorry, my mic was delayed. I'm a technological challenge. Good morning, LifePoint. How are y'all? Wonderful. If you have your Bibles, you can open them uh, to Luke chapter 2. We can get going here this morning. Luke chapter 2. As you guys are opening your Bibles or your phone apps, I'll, I'll go ahead and set up the morning. Um, you, you may have noticed this if you listen to Christmas music for any length of time, um, but it's what, what is true in Christmas music is also true in preaching, and that is it's very challenging to sustain preaching over Christmas. And um, you would think this would not be the case, but for a number of reasons, this is the case. Uh, primarily, uh, there are only really two clear birth of Christ texts in the New Testament. You've got Luke 2, you've got Matthew 2, and they're only a few verses long each. And so after you've rung every sermon out of you know, both of those, it, you, know, you just find yourself kind of repeating the same thing over and over again. And, and again, this is a parallel in Christmas music, if you've heard it, you know, you hear, you're like, oh my goodness, there's a remix of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, and now it has, you know, you know, it's like a techno remix of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, and oh, okay, this year is the rap techno remix of Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You, right? Because there's only so much you can do with even Christmas music, and uh, I think for many of us, this, there's a third parallel here, and, and that is in our own lives, as we've experienced Christmas over and over and over again, um, we begin to find that we take it for granted, right? If you are on your 40th Christmas or your 50th Christmas, if you've gone through kids enjoying Christmas and that kind of was a shot in the arm and then you have grandkids maybe in your 60s and that was a shot in the arm, you get to a point where you're like, okay, Christmas is simply just this season where it's cold outside in Texas and... You know, I kind of go through the motions of, yeah, I'm happy, and we're going to sing these songs, and then it's the 25th, and then it's the new year. And you can, if you're not careful, you can take it for granted. And this isn't a bad thing. I just think this is a reality of human experience. If you're here today, some of you are nodding. You understand that, right? Uh, it's, it's difficult, again, as the years keep going, for us to keep the wonder of Christmas, the vision of Christmas before us. And so what I want us to do here in this sermon series, and for each of us in our own souls, uh, as we launch this new sermon series over Christmas, I, I want us to rediscover the wonder of Christmas as the Bible describes it. And that's our challenge. This week, I'm going to preach on the wonder of the birth. Next week, uh, Pastor David, our uh, student pastor, is going to preach on the wonder of oikos, which is a Greek word. He'll explain. He's a lot smarter than me on that. Uh, and then in week three of this, George is going to come in, and he's going to talk about wonder, and he's also going to talk about wonder uh, at our Christmas Eve services. So our goal, if you guys are ready to jump into this, is to rediscover the wonder of Christmas. And as we start to do that, I want to invite you to pray with me here. Jesus, uh, you came to earth, and that's not a statement we should overlook. You came to earth, uh, and there was something transcendently amazing that took place. You came to earth. God came to earth. And, and my prayer is that we would just rediscover the wonder of that statement here this morning, and that it would propel the way we experience and journey through the Christmas season this year. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to really get all of the goodness and the peace out of this amazing statement as we consider it here afresh this morning. And it's in Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, and I'll uh, read, which is actually going to be on my teleprompter here. And here's how it goes. Uh, in the same region where the shepherds uh, were out in the field keeping watch over their flocks by night, 
uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of God shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you, and if you have a pen, you can circle this good news uh, or a pencil. Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you, uh, born in this day in the city uh, is, of David, is a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was this, this with angels of multitude, the heavenly host, which is like from heavens coming down, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest. And here's the next word you can circle if you circle words. Peace among those with whom he is well pleased. Life point. I want you to notice two things, and we're gonna talk about it here this morning, that the two big words that pop out in this text. Number one, the first word or phrase is, is, is good news, right? I bring you good news of great joy. The second one is this, and that is peace. Let's look at those kind of in, in turn. Number one, I bring you good news. What, what is good news? Is this just kind of like, hey, there's this baby that's been born. Okay, no. If you uh, have studied the, the Bible at all, you know that this phrase, good news, we use another word for it, it's gospel. Uh, when Jesus came to earth, this was the beginning of the gospel, of the good news that God has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now to be sure, the gospel doesn't have its fullest clarity until we get to Easter, until we get to the cross, but at Christmas time, we have the initiation of this good news. It's gospel. Something gospelish is taking place here. And we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But I want you to notice that even at Jesus' birth, the gospel has made its way into earth, into our understanding. So Jesus' birth is part of the good news, right? That's the first one, okay? I'm just teasing that out. The second one is this. It's this word, peace. Jesus' Jesus's birth was meant to achieve peace. It was an inauguration, if you will, of peace coming on earth. Now, having stated that, this is the question I want us to consider and unpack this morning, and that's this. Why does Jesus' birth bring peace? Why does Jesus' birth bring peace? Have you thought about that? Like, what's peaceful about that? Like, a baby is born in this manger in this quaint little village of a very small nation called uh, you know, Israel, okay, so this, just this Jewish kid is born like a long time ago, like 2,000 years ago. How does that bring peace? What's really going on here that's gonna lead to peace? That's the question I want us to consider and to think through this morning. And so we're gonna consider that question, why is Jesus' birth bring peace? We're gonna consider it holistically, theologically, and philosophically here this morning using our friend, the white chart here. And here's how I wanna set this up. Um, in your bulletins you have this, but uh, I just want you to notice that there is this basic formulation of the way that humans live lives, okay? And all humans experience this same thing uh, to be true, okay? Humans have sin, and sin leads to sins, lowercase, plural, okay? So uppercase, non-lowercase, sins, which leads to consequences, okay? So there are sins which lead to sin, or their sin, which leads to sins, which leads to consequences, okay? And this is true of every human being who's ever lived in all of history, okay? And we'll just kind of explain that here today and why that's significant. But let me just define these terms a little bit. Uh, first, there is sin, okay? And sin, as we define that, is really a matter of your condition, okay? 
Dot those eyes, make sure you can see it. Sin is a matter of your condition. It's an essential part of your being, okay? We'll say a little bit more about that. Sin, capital S, is, uh, is contrasted with lowercase sins because sins refers to your or our behavior, okay? Sins refer to our behavior. And so let me just kind of help clarify the difference between those two concepts. Um, you may have experienced this if you're a believer in Christ. You've been born again. Jesus takes up residence in your heart right next to your will. He's informing your will. Remember, we've talked about this the last couple of weeks. Okay? And so you would say at some point when I became a Christian, I confessed my sin and repented before God. Okay, That happened at some point in my life. And maybe you're living and journeying as a believer here this morning. But you may find yourself committing these acts, these behaviors that are called sins, okay? You're gruff with a friend at work. Um, you speed when you know you're not supposed to, something like this. Some kind of behavioral thing happens, and you know that it is out of line with the standard, the gospel standard that Jesus calls you to, and you've now committed a lowercase sin, okay? And so what do you do is you're, if you're a believer and God's brought conviction on your life? Well, you stop, and in that moment, you pray, and you ask Jesus to forgive your sins, right? Okay, this happens, you know, as much as we sin as believers, and, uh, you know, spoiler alert here today, if you're not a, a Christian, Christians still sin, okay? You, you may have noticed this. Uh, if anyone's not a believer here and maybe a little bit on the cynical side, you may have thrown this hypocrite label towards Christians. Oh, Christians are just hypocrites, right? Because they sin just like we do. What you're referring to is behavioral, Okay, you still commit sins and you ask for forgiveness. This is important. What you are doing when you pray and you ask God for forgiveness as a believer, you're not asking Jesus to get back on the cross again and die for your condition, okay? He already took care of that at the cross. That's what we celebrate at Easter, okay? He's already died to transform your condition. No, you're talking about your behavior. My behavior is out of line with the gospel, the standard that Jesus has for me. So do you see that difference? There is sin, which is a condition, we'll speak more about here, but that always leads to or produces sin's behavior, okay? The condition produces a behavior. The behavior also brings about something called consequences. So sins produce consequences. Now there can be good consequences, there can be bad consequences, right? If I take a shower, right, then I'm you know, more than likely to smell nice. That's a good consequence. If I don't take a shower, uh, then I don't smell so nice and people don't want to be around me. That's a bad consequence, okay? Consequences really refer to your perspective. Your perspective. Um, in ethics, when you think about the discipline of ethics, there are really two prominent schools of ethics, uh, ethical philosophy. You have consequentialists and you have virtue ethics people. Consequentialist ethics is we look at the consequences of something and as if we say we wanna deal with them or not deal with them, that shapes our perspective. The other way is to call virtue ethics where we look at the virtue of something and we say that shapes our perspective. And consequentialist ethics and virtue ethics, there's no test on this, no quiz. I'm just kinda of telling you guys this, right? They're kinda of kissing cousins, that's an East Texas term, they're very close, but it basically refers to this kind of very commonplace experience where if we see something we don't want, we make sure it informs our perspective. If we see something we do want to happen, it also informs our perspective. So here's a great example. It's the most common example most of us will refer to. A child sees a stove, walks over the stove. The stove is turned on. It's kind of at that orange, kind of 
portion of the stove. It's moved from black to orange, right? Uh, and you go, and the child goes and touches the stove. It burns them, and they do this thing, right? Okay. Oh, man, the stove, when it's hot, if I touch it, it burns me. What have I learned now? Don't touch the stove, right? That consequence has now shaped my perspective. I am a non-stove-touching person, okay? That's my worldview. It's part of my worldview. It informs how I live in life. So if I see hot things, I stay away from them, right? Um, when we feel pain, for example, we try to avoid it. It's one of the basic things that shapes our worldview. When we see pleasure, on the other hand, we try to pursue it. Pleasure and pain are two of the greatest motivators of perspective, and pleasure and pain are both consequences, pain more likely the consequence of sinful behavior. When we sin, it affects our family, it affects our friends. Our behavior impacts them in a negative way. We are meant to, just in a natural sense, observe those consequences and let it shape our perspective. So here's what I want you guys to see just from this basic flow chart of the human condition is that all humans are born sinful with this condition, capital sin. It affects everything we do. Sin affects our will at the core of our heart. It informs the way we live and operate and move. And when we operate out of sin, if sin is left unchecked, we commit behavioral sins. And those sins affect not only ourselves, they affect people around us. There's a social component to our sinful behavior, which brings about consequences. And once those consequences come about, as human beings, we have to determine, okay, which consequences am I comfortable going to sleep, just leaving intention, and which consequences am I comfortable just saying I need to eradicate those? And that shapes my perspective. Sin, sins, consequences. Well, this has been the case pretty much since the start of creation. If you guys remember the Bible, uh, have read the Bible at all, uh, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, and on such and such a day, he creates mankind, and mankind starts to live in this garden called Eden, living this perfect existence. God says, you can really do anything you want, just don't eat of the tree uh, of, of the, the, the knowledge of good and evil, okay? Just stay away from that. And what does mankind do? It's like one of the first things. We're like, okay, don't do that. Okay, I'm gonna do that now, right? That was like the second thought. First thought was, I understand you told me don't eat of the tree of good and evil. My second thought is, I must eat of the tree of good and evil. And so this behavior, sin has crept in, the fall has taken place, and now they eat of the, the tree of good and evil, and there's a consequence. They're aware that they're naked, and they feel shame, and so they hide from God, Adam and Eve do. God says, what happened here? And they're like, you know, the man, obviously this is what the man does. Uh, the woman told me to do it, right? Because this is, this is the only you know, basic thought that men have in our brains is, right? They're like, well, what does the woman want? Yeah, that's pretty much what I'm gonna do, right? You know, we just follow our women around. We're like, uh, you know, how can I spend more time with you? Just do whatever you say. Okay, cool, I'll do that. I'm on board, right? And so God is like, no, I told you both equally. Don't do that. And so this, this causes this condition or this brings about and reveals this condition. It's what we call the fall, okay? And you would think, reading the Bible, you know, there are 39 Old Testament books, you would think that this fall probably takes place maybe in book five or six or seven, maybe well into, no, it's the third chapter of the first book. That's how far humans get, right? It's the third chapter of the first book. Humans have all, all of a sudden discovered this, right? You don't go too far, it's like God creates humans, you recognize humans are sinful, okay? That, that's how that works. Uh, just to tell you kind of a funny story on this, in our life beat, uh, discipleship class, you know, and I encourage everybody, if you haven't taken Life Beat, you should consider taking Life Beat in January. Uh, in Life Beat, we have our students read 
whole portions of the Bible. They start in Genesis, they read all the way through Revelation, whole portions of the Bible. We're trying to get them to read and understand the biblical narrative in a 16-week or, or so period. And it's always funny, the first week of reading is Genesis 1 through Genesis 21, three chapters a day for seven days. And they come back to the next week, and we always have a discussion. What did you think of Genesis? And it's very funny. Like on day one of Life Beat, we ask people, do you think humans are basically good or basically evil? You know, just kind of a, trying, to, trying to get a feel for things. And, you know, there's, it's always a mixed audience. They're like, well, I think humans are basically good. Some people are like, no, I think humans are basically bad and evil. And then we have the first week of reading, and they come back, and we go, okay, do you think humans are basically good or evil? And unanimously, everybody is like, humans are evil, right? We, we had so much hope in Genesis 1 and 2. We were like, oh, these humans, they're going to make it. And we get to Genesis 3, and the fall happens, and now we see that there's a sinful condition leads to sinful behavior and all these consequences, which shapes our perspective. And then you just see all of this horrible stuff start to take place that at the hands of humans who are out of relationship with God, and it's just this, this horrible story. And so each week they come back, and we're like, what do you think of humans? And they're like, I can't believe these humans did this awful sin. I can't believe these humans did this awful sin. It's just this amazing perspective that takes place as you read the Bible. Humans are bad, God is good, and there's a gap. Someone has to step into that gap and do something. Otherwise, humans are gonna destroy everything. That's what you get. You're like 15 chapters into Genesis. That's the perspective you get. Someone's gotta step in. And so, if you remember the biblical narrative, God does step in. And he creates something called the covenant. He establishes a covenant with mankind. It says, if you will just be in this relationship with me, if you'll just stick with me here, I'm going to address this scenario, this sequence here. And what God does is he establishes something called the law. And this is meant to counteract the fall, okay? But something really interesting happens when the law comes in, okay? The law does a couple of things. Number one, it describes what sinful behavior is. It says, when you do this, this is sinful behavior. And when you do that, that's sinful behavior, right? And then secondarily, it brings about punishment for bad consequences so that it reinforces your perspective. When you do this and it brings about these consequences, here's how you're going to atone for that. When, you know, women, when you do this, this is how you are going to address this. Men, when you do this, this is how you're going to address it. Here's the consequence for this, and hopefully that's going to inform your perspective. It's also going to change your behavior. That's what the law was meant to do in the Old Testament. It's God's first attempt at trying to step into the gap between humans being bad and God being good and trying to do something with that tension there, okay? Because, and it reveals this, because if humans are left alone to this flow chart, guess what? This does not bring peace. It brings anxiety. It's the opposite of peace. If humans are left to the fall, to their fallen condition, this is the opposite of peace. Again, our question is, what does Jesus being born have to do with peace? How is Jesus' birth good news of great joy that brings about peace for all people? We'll get to that. If left alone, the human condition is gonna produce this, which is not peace. God's first attempt at this is the covenant and the law. And something really interesting happened here. I'll flip a page just to let you guys know. Something really interesting happened here when the law came in. 
Because it was meant to help curb behavior. It was meant to help shape perspective around God and his values, his virtues, and who he is. It was meant to maybe deal with this issue of sin, this condition. But for whatever reason, it didn't do that. In fact, it produced the opposite. It produced two things. Humans uh, got really good at managing the behavior of sin. That's the first thing humans did. Oh, we have this new law. That law doesn't curb my behavior. It'll, it'll teach me just to manage my own sins, okay? I'm okay doing these sins today. I'm not gonna do these sins today. I'm just gonna kind of like, you know, manage those. But these sins I'll permit for a little bit, right? Humans manage sins and manage their behavior. The second thing that it did is it brought about humans modifying their perspective of consequences. Taught them to manage behavior, it taught them to modify their perspective on consequences. I'll give you a great kind of common example of this. The Old Testament, by the way, if you just read this, is over and over again, God coming and bringing this covenant, you know, wanting it to speak to the condition, and humans are like, oh, okay, you want me to create a new religion which manages my behavior and modifies my perspective, okay? I'll just create this new religion or this new perspective or this new religion, this new perspective. It's the whole Old Testament. But to give you kind of a, a modern a day kind of example of this, where we see this impacting society in an American context, uh, I want you to consider the pot laws in Colorado State, okay? I don't know if you know this, but marijuana is legal in Colorado. I, I know all you guys, y'all, y'all have never heard of this thing I'm talking about, marijuana. It's called a drug, right? I know none of you have ever heard of it because y'all are all good Christian people who just love Jesus and you're just always out evangelizing. You never have time to consider these things. But yeah, there's this drug called marijuana, and in Colorado, it's legal, Okay? And the story of how marijuana came to be legal in Colorado is a fascinating uh, illustration of this progression here. Okay? Marijuana is, is declared illegal in 1917, before prohibition, right? Or at least at the same time here. Marijuana becomes illegal in Colorado before beer becomes illegal in Colorado. Okay? There's this huge precedent of not uh, of the law, the civic structure is trying to inform human society saying don't smoke pot over and over and over again since 1917. In fact, beer and alcohol becomes legal well before pot ever becomes legal. And yet, there's this really interesting thing taking place. There's a subculture in Colorado, probably since 1917, that's been pushing for pot to be legalized. Pushing, pushing. And it's not just that they're pushing for pot to be legalized. It's that they're actively enjoying pot and consuming pot in their private residences. Almost completely in defiance of the law that was established there. Okay, so so let's just make sure we understand that. There's a law that comes down and it says, don't smoke pot. Okay? And that law was meant to manage behavior and help change or modify the perspective of this society. And here's what humans do. A small subculture goes, eh, I don't care about that law. I know that there are consequences for me breaking this law. If I'm caught with pot in my possession, I could face some type of punishable monetary fine or I could even spend time in jail, right? And this subculture basically said, I don't care what the consequences are. I'm gonna keep doing that. And it was this very small subculture. And so there was, there's just this constant tension between local civic officials and establishing and reinforcing the law and people who look at the law, thumb their nose at it and say, I'm just gonna smoke pot anyway. And that subculture grows and grows and grows. 
No modification of behavior, no modification of perspective. It just keeps growing and growing and growing until this subculture actually reaches greater than 50%. It's 55% by 2014 or 2013 when the election cycle goes in. And in 2014, pot is now legalized in the state of Colorado both for recreational use and for medicinal use. Now, let me just kind of pause there. You may be here today going, what's wrong with pot, right? You're like, I don't know if it should really be illegal. You know, wine is legal, tobacco is legal, what about pot? And we can have like an intellectual conversation about that all day long, right? I'm using pot as an example here because I want you to see what's happened. A law comes in that's meant to modify or manage behavior and modify perspective, and it doesn't do any of that. And the people basically say to this civic law, they say, we don't care about it in such a great way that we're going to keep doing our behavior and we're not going to change our perspective on it. What you need to do is you need to change the law. And so in 2014, here's, this is really interesting if you read the details of this, just look this up, Google search this. You have these conservative political voices who I think probably would fit well in Collin County. Uh, Jewish leaders, Christian leaders, etc., and they basically say, we're going to swing to the side of being in favor of pot, not because we think it's med- medically helpful, we think it's medically unhelpful, not because we think it's legally helpful, we actually don't think it's legally helpful, but because we think this, this government law, as it's oppressing all of this bad behavior, we think it's too oppressive. We think the government needs to change because there's so much paperwork that government officials are having to fill out to enforce the law over and over again that we think it's a waste of taxpayer money. And so let's just make it legal so we don't have to do paperwork, right? This is the epitome of this right here. The law was supposed to change things, and it didn't. In fact, people were like, this law can't change things, so let's change the law. That's human behavior. What was supposed to bring peace to a civic land actually did the opposite. It brought more anxiety until the people said, we don't want that law anymore. Change it, get rid of it. We're just gonna behave how we wanna behave and we're gonna embrace the consequences, whatever they may be. This system doesn't work, okay? And even the conservative voices admitted that. See, if you just manage spend all of your attention on these things right here, sins and consequences, what you're simply doing is dealing with the external. You've never addressed the root problem. You're dealing with the symptoms. You're not dealing with the disease. The law can't deal with the disease. It can only deal with the symptoms of the disease. And with anyone, as anyone can attest who's had a cold here before or whatever, if all you do is manage the symptoms, you're just gonna be sicker longer and longer and longer until you ultimately wise up and say, I'm gonna deal with the, the cause here of the disease. We don't need humanity. We don't need to manage sins. We don't need a law to come in and teach us to modify our perspective on consequences. Here's what we need. We need a metamorph, ooh, that could be bad, assist, whoops, how about that? Is that better, given our current political climate? Metamorphosis, right? We need a metamorphosis. We need a change of the condition because when you change the condition, You bring peace. You change the condition, it changes the behavior, it changes the perspective. Peace is an inside-out process. So when Jesus came in Luke 2, 
He came for our condition. When Jesus came in Luke 2, God came for our condition because he knows if he changes this, he will affect this, and he will affect this. Again, it's, it's not that Jesus is opposed to dealing with sins, and it's not, it's not that Jesus doesn't bring this moral teaching perspective which helps modify and shape our perspective. He does do all of that, but he does it from the inside out. He doesn't work this way. This way is just anxiety, okay? Make sure that doesn't refer to anything, and hopefully I spelled that right, right? Outside in doesn't work. You've got to start here. You've got to change from the inside out. And when Jesus came in Luke 2, he came for our perspective. And he did that in a couple different ways. First, he lived a life, okay, on earth that taught us how to behave, okay? And that comes at Easter. Then, he taught, uh, he taught a worldview that helps shape our perspective. And those were good things. But again, if all you do is look at the life and the teachings of Jesus and you embrace that, all you're doing is inviting dead Jesus into your heart. Because where Jesus got at the root of the problem is he died on a cross and he rose again. Okay? And he dealt with the condition of sin. When Jesus died, he killed sin once and for all and now made it possible, as we've talked about for the last couple of weeks, to come dwell within our hearts and to shape our will and change our condition from the inside out. Jesus came for our condition. And that life point is the good news that brings peace. That's why we celebrate Christmas. There was 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then at one point, God broke through and said this, I recognize that the law has not accomplished what it needed to accomplish, and so this, I'm sending myself down to deal with the cause of it all. And so for us, as we come to Christmas, I wanna challenge us to think about this. There's a pastor named Andy Stanley, and he, he kinda has this cool phrase that I'm gonna pass on to you guys. It says this, um, That which we celebrate, we need to demonstrate. That which we celebrate, we must demonstrate. If this is true, and it is, that Jesus came for our cause to change it and to bring about peace as it shapes our behavior and it shapes our perspective, then it is true. We celebrate that. It's true that when it's Christmas time and throughout the year, we need to demonstrate that. We are called to. So I think we can demonstrate that in three ways. Number one, we can pray for the condition of our friends and our neighbors. Number one, we can pray for the condition of our friends and neighbors. You've got friends and neighbors, maybe you observe their behavior and you can kind of put two and two together and work backwards and go, they have this very sinful behavior. They are either uh, still grounded in sin or bound by sin, but maybe God hasn't uh, done anything with that yet. What you can pray for is you can pray for their condition. Hey, I pray that Jesus would cause them to be born again and bring them to faith in Christ and deal with this condition so that it can affect everything else. Just praying that our neighbors would be better people or better citizens 
or have a right perspective. You know, th- this is what people do in Christmas all the time, right? We don't ever address this. We're like, oh, it's Christmas time now. I think I need to b- behave correctly so that Santa brings me good presents or so that the elf on the shelf doesn't take notes, right? Elf on the shelf and Santa is all behavior management, right? Never deals with the condition. Oh, okay, it's Christmas. I really need to think about joy and peace and giving. And I never think about it the other 11 months, but during December, I'm gonna think about that stuff, right? We don't pray that our neighbors get on board with the Christmas spirit. We pray that they get on board with Christianity. They get on board with Christ who came for our condition. Number one, you can pray for their condition. Number two, you can join your friends and family and neighbor for their condition. You can begin building relationships with total strangers for the goal of their condition. Or you can, uh, you can join people who are somewhat strangers, but maybe neighborly, for their condition. Why should you go to your neighbor's house and maybe strike up a conversation and figure out what your neighbor likes and, and what they like and try to build that relationship with them? Because their condition's at stake. And just living around them, hoping and praying that their behavior and their perspective changes, that might work. I mean, God might use that, but he's told us he's gonna definitely use uh, evangelism when it starts with this, when we, we build relationships to change their condition. So you can join your neighbors uh, and your family members uh, with the goal of shaping their condition. And finally, you can pray for them, you can join them for their condition, you can invite them. You can invite them towards the goal of their condition. Meaning one of the easiest ways to start that process of really bringing about peace in your neighbor's life is to invite them to come to church with you, right? It's easy, hey, On Sunday morning in Plano, Texas, the popular thing to do is, whether you're a Christian or not, the popular thing to do is to go to church at least once in the calendar year. Most of those people, in fact, 80% of the people in population, according to George Barna, will go to church during a Christmas or an Easter season if a neighbor or a friend will ask them. So guess what you get to do? You get to ask them. Why? So that they'll come and have a good time and maybe change their behavior? No, no, no. So that maybe Jesus might speak to their condition and bring peace. Listen. If your neighbors don't know Jesus, but they're nice people, but they're good people, and they don't know Jesus, again, they are still not in peace. They may look like they're in peace, but they're not at peace because Jesus has not dealt with their condition. And if you want your neighbors to truly live in peace, the most loving thing you can do is to pray for them, to join them, to invest in them, and then to invite them to either come with you to church or invite them over to your house so you can share Christ with them directly. Again. It's, it's whatever you're comfortable with at this point, but I wanna challenge you to just, whatever your comfort zone is, take one step outside of it. Not four steps, just maybe one step outside of it. And guess what? We have a great opportunity for you to invite them to something really non-threatening. We have a Christmas show at 6 p.m. where they can get food. Just kind of say this. Hey, this evening at six o'clock, can I take you and your family to a cool building where there will be cookies, right? And then when you show up, you're, you know, you're driving in, they're like, this looks like a church. You're like, does it? Is that, is that a church? Huh, I didn't even think about that. Oh, I guess it is a church. Well, let's just go inside, right? Hey, it's gonna be fun. It's gonna be Christmassy. This, I think your neighbors would love to come to this. It could be a great opportunity for start helping Jesus to direct and deal with their condition. Let me, let me end by telling you this cool story. Um, in uh, 1979, there's a guy named Paul McCartney. Have you heard of him? He's a billionaire, I don't know, he's kind of important. Anyway, so he writes this song called A Wonderful Christmas Time, which is both hated and loved by lots of people, okay? It's got all the synth stuff going on. It's, nothing is more uh, symbolic of the, the musical excess of the 70s and 80s than Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul McCartney, which I have love, by the way. Um, 
So Paul McCartney, he, he makes this song, and it kind of is very influential in musical circles. And so all these kind of copies of Wonderful Christmas Time start coming out. And I think the best copy, kind of a, kind of a throwback to that song, is this song called um, uh, The Spirit of Christmas. Uh, actually, it's called Christmas Time by Ray Charles. It comes out in 1985 on the album Spirit of Christmas. It's just this overly synth kind of Ray Charles-y version of a song. And it's really interesting because, you know, Ray Charles is like the father of soul, right? But he has this kind of unique Christmas song. And I, I was listening to the album uh, the other day, and, and it struck me. Ray Charles was raised by a very devout evangelical Christian mother. And, and that comes through in his Christmas albums. Because he can't ever talk about Christmas as just this time. He has to talk about Christmas as being Jesus-centered. And he has this, you know, oh, do you, do you guys, do you have the picture of that, guys, in the back? Okay, take a look at this. Uh, are we throwing that up on the screen? Oh, that's up on the screen there. Sorry, I, I can't see. Uh, so check this out. Just, just humor me here. I know I'm way over time, but it's Ray Charles who, can I just say this? He's blind, right? We know this. Okay. And he's in this sleigh, and he's wearing like a leisure suit. Like, this is 1985. Any of you who are alive there, this is 1985. This is like completely preposterous, but there you go, right? So, and this is actually, it came out on records. It's really hard to find it these days. You have to search for it. But here's a song. It's called uh, uh, Christmas Time. And here's what he says. I'm listening to it. It's kind of cheesy. And then this just kind of struck me as interesting. He says, people go in here and people go in there buying gifts for those they know and love. They never stop to think that the greatest gift of all is he who sends his love from up above. That Christmas time is really more than giving. It's spreading all the news of peace and love. Christmas time is all about receiving the gift that God has sent from up above. See, Ray knew this to be true that Christmas time is when Jesus came for our condition. And so I want to invite you over this Christmas season to consider the condition of your friends and family members and to pray for them and to join them and to invite them to come with you as you come to church on Sundays. Let's pray. Jesus, uh, I thank you that um, you coming to earth was not just the establishment of a new religion or a new law, or you're simply just gonna try to curb our behavior or modify our perspective, that you didn't try a failed attempt at moving human history, but that you uh, came to earth to deal with our condition. And so as we enter Christmas and as we celebrate the fact that you came for our condition, Lord, I pray for Life Point Church that we would be a people who demonstrate that reality. We don't just celebrate it and walk out of here and, and live our lives as normal, but that we would demonstrate that in the way we pray for our friends and we invest in our friends and we invite our friends to come to church with us. Lord, fill us with boldness to speak. Give us opportunities to speak. Clarify those opportunities that we might speak into them. And Lord, give us the burden that starts with the reality that you came to shape a condition, Lord. May it never be something that we take for granted like Christmas music. May it be something that we just are reminded of each day that you did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That when we were still sinful people lost in this condition, you came in and you took care of that condition and came into our hearts and began to inform our life that would move us towards peace. Lord, maybe we'd be the kind of people who invest in our neighbors for the same reason. 
And Lord, out of this same gratitude, we're about to give uh, some tithes and offerings. And I pray that you would bless that in your ministry as you go to reach the nations starting in Collin County and moving beyond from the four corners of our neighborhood block to the four corners of the globe. And it's in your name we pray, amen.